I don't think there's ever been a time in our lifetime in this country where Christians were obliged publicly to have to choose a standard of truth to live by more so than we are now. What I mean is I believe that it is becoming increasingly difficult for Christians to keep our convictions about what we believe to be true to ourselves. Probably a good thing. Our hand is being forced like never before in this country to reveal what we believe and either suffer the consequences, whatever they may be, or cave to the tidal wave of public pressure that is coming and amend or change our interpretation of the truth so as to allow us to continue being comfortable. Because we've been quietly comfortable for a long time, uh, at least as long as I've been alive. It has been very easy to be a Christian in this country, but for the first time in at least a generation or two, and probably much longer than that, the very first inklings of difficulty, the earliest tremors of what could develop into a very real shaking of persecution for being a follower of Christ, are beginning to appear in our society. And part of that is because of technology, we're informed uh, almost instantly now of every opinion and position and shifting of those people and organizations and entities that tend to have the most influence over public opinion. In other words, uh, the spread of information is so vast and so fast now that the collective conscience of society at large can be influenced and therefore shift very quickly so that change in public perception and opinions about important issues tend to happen much faster now than ever before. And another part of that change uh, that's taking place is political in nature. Uh, as our government changes policy and law according to uh, concerning issues that Christians have historically held as unchangeable absolutes based on our interpretation of God's word. For example, we've seen a shifting in just our lifetime in public opinion and government policy concerning abortion. It was first legalized in 1973 and has now come to the point, as we're learning, uh, where the government is funding this organization that is apparently selling human body parts from aborted babies. Likewise, same-sex marriage, which was once illegal and then became legalized by individual states and is now legalized under federal law. And yet these changes in law and policy and public opinion for the first time are beginning to directly affect those whose understanding of the truth and the nature of God himself prohibits them from endorsing or participating in these activities that were just recently illegal and considered by a majority of Americans to be immoral and in violation of God's law. So uh, whether you agree with those changes, those positions or not, is actually not my point this morning. The point is that I think it's hard to deny that there is in fact a major shift taking place in our culture over the last generation. And Christians more than ever are increasingly being required either to take a stand for their long-held interpretations of God's truth or to amend, to change what they consider to be true under threat of censure or fines or imprisonment from the government, and certainly at the very least under increasing social pressure from within our own culture as well, depending upon the circumstances. The fact is, many confessing, professing Christians are changing their interpretations of the truth. One of our largest evangelical and historical churches in Greenville just recently voted to ordain gay and transgender ministers and to perform same-sex weddings. And when interviewed by the Greenville News, the pastor said, and I'm quoting here, what we believe about marriage and family is culturally driven, not biblically driven. Amazing. Rob Bell, the founding pastor of Mars Hill Church in Michigan, one of the fastest growing mega churches in America at the time, he was voted one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine in 2011. And he was interviewed earlier this year by Oprah Winfrey. And when she asked him when the church, meaning the, the worldwide church, uh, would embrace gay marriage, he said, we're moments away. I think the culture is already there and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago, he's talking about the Bible, as their best defense. The leading Democratic candidate for president just recently in reference to efforts by her opposition to end abortion stated that deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. 
In other words, we should allow our convictions to be shaped by our culture instead of the culture being shaped by our convictions. Clearly, there's a shift happening within our society and our government and some elements of the church in our generation. And yet for those of us who believe that the nature of marriage and human life and the sanctity and sacredness of both are indeed defined in the Holy Scriptures and that those definitions transcend shifts in culture and public opinion and government policies on any given day, for us the stakes are getting higher. Because the very people who scream for tolerance from the church concerning their constantly changing convictions are becoming increasingly intolerant of our own convictions that haven't changed for millennia. We see evidence of that in the news today. Christian bakers and flower shop owners and pizza makers and wedding chapel attendants and clerks of court being pursued by attorneys and government officials, uh, fined heavily, in some cases forced out of business, put into jail, their lives for some of them threatened for not reinterpreting their religious beliefs and participating in activities that violate their religious conscience to suit those who disagree with them. Now understand... I actually believe that it is our government's responsibility to treat all human beings the same. I believe that. But I also believe that it is the Christian's responsibility to stand for the truth with compassion and love, even when that means we have to pay a very heavy price for it. Now, I don't, I don't talk about current events a lot. I don't get caught up in that a lot. I pay attention to them. But you know, when, I'm, when we preach, we're working through books of the Bible. But this thing with Kim Davis has so enraptured uh, the conscience of our, of our uh, culture today. And we're so split. And the argument that I see from conservatives and liberals and, and the, however you want to describe the two groups, that a lot of people saying that what the government did to her is wrong. That, that she was right for standing up for what she believed and she shouldn't have been put in jail for it. And then you have the other side of it that says, no, she, she should have obeyed the laws of the land and she got what she deserved. And that's an argument to be had. And that's fine. We can have that argument on another day. That's, that's the whole issue. What I don't hear a lot of people talking about and what is more um, significant to me about that whole situation is that if you look at Peter and Paul and John and the others in the Bible who... Whether the laws of the land were good or not, whether they were good or bad, that's a whole other conversation. We're not having that today. But they were the laws of the land. When, when they were told, you cannot preach the gospel of Christ, what did they do? They did it anyway. And they knew full well what was coming when they did. They knew they would be put in jail. They knew they would be persecuted. They knew that they were, would be killed. And they were. And so from that standpoint, if Kim Davis, and I think that she does, understood before she was put in jail what was going to happen because she said as much, then you know what? Bravo. We can argue about whether or not the law should be the way that it is. Different conversation. But if she feels the conviction of God to stand up for what is right and she knows that she's going to be put in jail for it, which she did, then she stands for righteousness and she suffers the consequences. Right? So whether you agree with all of that or not, uh, that is happening. And here is a woman who has said, come what may, I will do what I believe is right. What God says in his word as she interprets it. Being a Christian, is my, this is my point, is not as comfortable as it once was. And it may well become quite uncomfortable if these trends progress. Being a follower of Jesus Christ may become a very unpopular identity status in, this, in the future in this country. I think that's happening already. And so the time to make those hard choices, whether we're going to stand for the truth as defined in Scripture or allow our convictions to be defined by culture, the time to make those hard choices is now. Because if you wait to make that decision when everything that you hold dear in your life is on the line, you will likely cave to the pressure in that moment. Most people do. And yet in all of this, there are a couple of really important points for us to remember. First of all, God is sovereign. This is all a part of his plan. It's unfolding before our eyes. And quite honestly, I think it's a very exciting time to be alive and a member of his church. I think that history will look back 
at this period of time, this period of church history in America, if the Lord doesn't return before then, and recognize those who stood for righteousness when many others caved to the pressure of the shifts in pop culture. If you know anything about William Wilberforce in England, incredible man. He spent his life fighting for the abolition of slavery in England because of his convictions as a Christian. Even though he was fighting against much of the religious establishment and his own government and certainly culture at the time, he he was viewed very negatively. He was attacked constantly in the newspapers. Uh, The culture of his time stood firmly against him. He was physically attacked. His life was uh, often threatened. He had to have people with him to protect him when he traveled. And yet history now sees him as a hero of the faith. I believe that much in the same way the followers of Christ who stand for biblical truth in defense of the sanctity and sacredness of human life and marriage today will be looked upon as heroes of the faith far into the, into the future, even though for a time we may have to stand against popular sentiment within our culture and our government and even some elements of the church, unfortunately. The second point to remember is that no matter what happens, no matter how difficult it may become to stand for the truth in this country, God will never leave us stranded. He'll never leave us stranded where our only option is to compromise the truth. Never. 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, in other words, it's coming, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And we, we misinterpret this uh, verse very often. People say that it means God will never put on us more than we can bear emotionally or physically. And that's not actually what it's saying. Uh, What it means is that God will never allow us to be in any situation where our only option in response to that situation is to sin. In other words, even though we may, we may well face incredible emotional and physical pain. I mean, talk to the person whose child is killed in a car accident or something. You tell me that isn't more than I can bear. Right? It's, it's really something we should stop saying because it's just not true. God allows us to walk through phenomenally difficult things in this life. Right? He allows us to be tempted. But there's always a righteous response available to us. So no matter how difficult it may become to maintain that position, a strong position in support of biblical truth, under intense persecution and even scrutiny if it comes to that. God will never allow us to be in a situation where our only option is to cave to that pressure and compromise. And so the key in all of this is to discover the truth, as Alan Hirsch discussed in the video there, if you haven't already, and then choose to live in the world, but not of it. You've heard that, right? Do not be conformed to the ways of this world. We must choose to live above the fray of the the cultural schizophrenia that seems to be redefining right and wrong constantly in our society today. And so, as we begin a new sermon series this morning, working our way through the book of Daniel, we find Daniel and his friends in this first chapter living in a foreign culture that is hostile to to their faith, and yet they manage by God's sovereign working to live there in tension with the secular pagan culture, and yet at the same time, They live there with a sense of compassionate clarity about their situation. It's an uncanny wisdom, especially their age, uh, in how they should best interact with those around them. And the result of the way that they choose to live and behave there is nothing short of amazing. I I think as we examine their lives in exile, we'll be able to draw some compelling parallels to the life of the Christ follower in this country today and hopefully learn some vital lessons about living above the fray. So let's turn there now, if you have your Bibles, to Daniel chapter 1. And just a bit of backstory before we read. The book of Daniel was written by Daniel, a Jew living under Babylonian exile. And this book is a record of the events of his life during that time, from 605 B.C. until 536 B.C. And it also uh, chronicles his prophetic visions. In fact, the book is divided into two halves, and each with its own genre. The first six chapters contain narratives, stories about Daniel and his three friends. The last six chapters contain apocalyptic uh, visions uh, that, although are very ominous sounding, they actually were meant to reassure God's people that in spite of their persecution and suffering, that God God is sovereign, he's firmly in control, and he will ultimately bring a final victory for his people. 
And so as we start out in chapter one, we find these four Hebrew friends being taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, during his siege of Jerusalem that came in several waves over the years. And it culminated, of course, in the destruction of the city and the burning of the temple in 586 BC. So let's pick up the story now, Daniel chapter one. And we'll start off with the first two verses. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem. He wins a decisive victory. And in the process, he hauls off some of the items from the temple and brings them along with some of the Jewish people, as we'll see, back to Babylon. And lest we think this turn of events is simply a result of the military might of Babylon at the time compared to the weaker Jewish nation or some random disaster befalling the Hebrew people, Daniel makes sure to point out in verse 2 that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God did it. This was his doing, an intentional act of God. In fact, it was, not only, it was not only intention, it was the fulfillment of a promise from God that he'd made 700 plus years earlier, between seven and 900 years earlier in Leviticus 26, 33 and 34. God warned his people after disobeying his commandments. He said, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your city shall be a waste. And then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. And then if you look at Isaiah 39, 6 and 7, about 100 years earlier, Isaiah foretells of this event to greater detail to King Hezekiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. These are specific promises from God, prophetic promises, right down to the details of what is taken from Jerusalem and what becomes of those who are taken from the royal family. He says they shall be eunuchs. Those were males who had been castrated in in, in the palace of the king of Babylon, one of the most evil cities in the ancient world, which is exactly what we see happening here in Daniel chapter 1. And the, the point is that as difficult and seemingly disastrous as this development appears to be, It is all orchestrated by the hand of God, according to His word, for His people. Well, why? Why in the world? Well, for one thing, in order to bring a rest, a Sabbath, it says, to the land that has been defiled by their obedience, and ultimately to bring His people back to Him, back to their God, from centuries of rebellious behavior. And so even in our hardship and struggle, in this life, We can rest in the knowledge that nothing, absolutely nothing, first of all, escapes the hand of God. Nothing gets past Him. Nothing is beyond Him. He's firmly in control, even in what seem to be the worst disasters of our lives. When, When we are blindsided by events, we can rest in the knowledge that God is never blindsided. And even better, in fact, he always has a good purpose for every event, in every situation, in every hardship and circumstance that we face in this life, even the most difficult ones. In fact, sometimes especially the most difficult ones. God is absolutely sovereign, and we'll see that theme running all the way through this book. Let's keep reading, verses 3 through 7. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. 
So this is the beginning of the first of three waves of what became as, uh, known as the, the Babylonian exile. And as part of this Jewish deportation, the king of Babylon orders his chief eunuch to round up some of the best and brightest among the, among the Jewish uh, royal bloodline and nobility, among whom were Daniel and his three friends. And although we don't have a tremendous amount of history on Daniel before this point, if you do a close, a close comparison between 2 Kings chapter 20 and Isaiah 29, uh, it seemed to pretty clearly indicate that Daniel was most likely a direct descendant of King Hezekiah. And so Nebuchadnezzar has these, these young nobles, most likely... Uh, between 13 and 17 years old, abducted. And he not only has them educated and trained and reared in the cultural and religious ways of the Babylonians, but he has many of them castrated in the service of the king, which was common in those days for uh, court officials to be made eunuchs. It was probably also a way for King Nebuchadnezzar to try and wipe out the royal bloodline of the Jews to keep them from uh, having children. And, and also he kept them in his court in the palace, in his royal court, which discourages a possible rebellion by the Jews in the future for fear of killing their own children in the king's palace. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar was no dummy. He's a smart guy. He was doing everything that he could to not only assimilate these Jews into Babylonian culture, but to completely obliterate their religious and cultural identities by trying to reprogram everything that they knew about life and culture and God Hopefully, in his eyes, making them fully dependent upon the Babylonian court so they would no longer rely on their God. This was total indoctrination, brainwashing into the Babylonian way of life. And it shows in every carefully chosen step that Nebuchadnezzar took in transitioning these Jewish boys into his culture. He even replaced their Israelite names with new names that were linked to Babylonian deities. Daniel, which meant God is my judge, was now Belteshazzar, which meant, O lady, wife of the god Bel, protect the king. Hananiah, which meant Yahweh is gracious, was now Shadrach, which meant command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael, which, went, which meant who is what God is, was now Meshach, which meant who is like Aku. And Azariah, which meant Yahweh is a helper, was now Abednego, which meant servant of the shining one, Nebo. And so, just try and imagine, if you're Daniel, how you might feel toward God and government and any authority at this point, if you'd experienced everything that he'd experienced in his young life up to this point. After being born into privilege as Jewish royalty from noble descent, you're given all of the best opportunities that life and culture and education have to offer. You faithfully dedicate your life to God, and then one day, by no doing of your own, your home is invaded and destroyed. You're kidnapped, taken captive, and led away from your family by a pagan, devil-worshipping, castrated man from a foreign country. You're taken away to live in the very epicenter of this foreign country, in the court of the one who ordered you to be ripped away from your home and family. Your name is changed. Your identity is stripped from you. And most likely, the physical nature of your manhood is removed. It seems to me that I'd be fairly angry at this point, wouldn't you? Maybe angry at my countrymen even for not protecting me better. Most likely angry at God for allowing all this to happen in my life. Definitely angry at the evil government that had brought all this misery down in my life. And I think that probably the furthest thing from my mind at that point would be honoring anyone else. I think that's the last thing I would be concerned with. Honestly, wouldn't you basically be in full-on self-preservation mode at that point? You know, bracing yourself against everyone and everything that represents authority in your life. And yet that's not what we find with Daniel and his friends at all. In fact, we see just the opposite. Even in this unthinkable set of circumstances that, that they find themselves in. They still, despite the horrors of their situation, decide to honor God in everything that they do. And one really significant way that they do that is by honoring these government leaders of Babylon. These are the enemies. The people who've completely ruined their way of life. Stripped them of their identities emotionally, physically, culturally, and religiously. This is evil incarnate, the very people that they have every reason to hate with every fiber within them. And yet Daniel and his friends do everything that they can 
to honor this evil leadership that now rules over their lives. In fact, even when they refuse to obey Nebuchadnezzar, their attitude is still full of honor and respect. It's really almost unimaginable to me to consider the fortitude of these young men who clearly understood the sovereignty of God in ways that I think most of us could probably never dream of, including me. We go through something difficult today and within a few days, if it hasn't passed, we're bouncing off the walls. We're at each other's throats. We're depressed and despondent. We're questioning everything. But these guys were as steady as the hand of God that was still at work in their lives. How did they know? How did they know that God was still for them? Who would think that he was in that situation? When you're under those circumstances, how could you imagine that God is for me, that God still loves me, that God is still protecting me? How could they possibly know that, giving everything that happened to them and the situation that they now find themselves in? It surely wasn't because of their circumstances. In fact, it had absolutely nothing to do with their circumstances. If Daniel and his friends had estimated their worth in God's eyes based on these circumstances, they probably would have all gone out and, you know, killed themselves. Let's jump off a cliff together because their circumstances couldn't get a whole lot worse. We can't base our worth in God's eyes and the plan that he has for our lives for tomorrow on the difficult circumstances that we face today. We cannot Our worth in God's eyes and the good plan that he has for us has nothing to do with our circumstances. It's based on the promises that he's given us in his word. Isaiah 40, 29 through 31, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isaiah 41, 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Philippians 4.19, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.38 and 39, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, that's all of our circumstances, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We, should, we could do this all day long. Our circumstances are temporary. God's word is eternal. Daniel and his friends lived with an understanding of who God is and how he felt about them based on his word given to his people. And that understanding resided in the very core of who they were with such a clarity that regardless of their circumstances, they were able to honor him just because of who he is. Well, how do we know that? Well, first of all, it's because we know they were raised that way and taught that from birth, but it's more than that. This understanding was built into their very identity. It was who they were, literally how they were defined from birth Daniel's name was God is my judge. Hananiah was named Yahweh is gracious. Mishael was named who is what God is. Azariah was named Yahweh is a helper. These teenagers knew their God and they knew who they were in their God's eyes. Right? So much so that no matter what circumstances were thrown at them, no matter uh, what unspeakable evil they were thrust into, they knew that justice would prevail. How could they know that justice would prevail in their circumstances? Because one of them was literally identified as God is my judge. That's who he was. They knew that God would preserve them in every trial because one of them was Yahweh is gracious. They knew that no evil power of the enemy could overcome them because one of them was, who is what God is? 
And they knew that they would be sustained through every hardship that they faced because one of them was Yahweh is a helper. You see, these young men may have been forced into this situation, but the truth is they were born for this situation. Did you ever stop to think that just maybe whatever struggle you find yourself in, that even though you didn't ask for it, you don't particularly want it in your life, did you ever consider that maybe you were born for this moment? Maybe there's a greater purpose, a higher cause, a better outcome to what you're facing than you could ever imagine. And not only did God know that it was going to happen exactly as it has happened, but just maybe... He actually created you for this moment to walk through whatever it is that you're walking through for something greater. Daniel and his friends got that. They knew that there was more to the story than their crummy circumstances. And so they decided from day one to live above the fray of their culture, which meant honoring God in everything that they did. And that manifests itself initially in their attitudes particularly those who were opposing them, toward them. Why? Because honoring God means honoring our leaders, even uh, the bad ones. As you read through this account of Daniel and his friends' lives in the royal court of Babylon, we don't find these young Jews stirring up a rebellion, disparaging the leaders set over them, calling them names, treating them disrespectfully because they knew that God expected them to honor those in authority over them, even the pagan ones. Yet I think this is largely a foreign concept for many people today. I think we, I think we tend to struggle with the idea that God puts leaders in places uh, over us and uses them to his ends, even, even the ones that we don't like. And as such, we're still commanded to respect and honor them. That doesn't mean we necessarily agree with them. And when it comes to issues of sin and righteousness, we don't necessarily always obey them, which we'll see with these young Jewish men later, but we're commanded to show honor and respect. In the first two verses of Romans 13, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. In Acts 23, we find Paul under arrest, wrongly accused, persecuted daily, treated horribly, and now being drugged before the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish ruling council, to be interrogated. And as he begins to state his case, he gets punched in the face by one of the officials for speaking out of turn. And Paul's response is just what you would expect from, certainly in our culture, probably in in attitude at least, to what most of us would say today. In verse 3 he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to that law you order me to be struck? Paul's ticked off. And who wouldn't be, you see? Paul knew the law. He was one of the most educated men in the planet at that time. He knew the law inside and out. And he's referring here uh, to Leviticus 19.15, where God's law, which, by the way, the Sanhedrin was subject to, says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So Paul's letting them know in no uncertain terms that how he's being treated is in direct violation of God's law. And yet all of a sudden, something very interesting happens. Verses 4 and 5, it says, Those who stood by said to Paul, Would you revile God's high priest? Now, Paul didn't realize that it was the high priest who ordered him to be struck in the face, which means he didn't know who he was correcting. And so in an instant, even though Paul was correct in referring back to Leviticus. And even though the high priest was wrong in having Paul struck in the face, Paul's attitude changes drastically because he understood God's position on how we're to treat those in authority over us, even when they're wrong. He says in verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul instantly goes from indignation to contrition because of of the authority before him. And I know that goes against the very grain of who we are as Americans, uh, right? We pride ourselves on standing up to authority and our rights to do so. But listen, we should never allow our rights as Americans to trump our responsibility as Christians. 
God's commands for life and conduct are higher than the laws of this land or any other land. Our allegiance is to him and to his word first. And so in practical terms, we should think twice before referring to um, our elected officials as idiots and worthless people all over social media. And yet I see believers doing that almost every day. What it does is it contradicts the message that we say we represent, which is supposed to be one of compassion and love and respect. We should always respond to our leaders with respect, not ridicule. Ridicule alienates us and our message from the culture around us. Respect endears us and our message to the culture around us. And the result of that, when we act with compassion and respect and honor, is that we become much more approachable. People are far more willing to listen to a message from and engage in conversation with other people who they feel are compassionate and open to listen and respectful in their response, even when we disagree. But when we snarl and bark at everyone and everything that we disagree with, we just alienate ourselves and our message from others. And, and so showing respect and honor, even when it isn't deserved, can open doors with leaders, even unbelieving leaders, to our message, which we see, we'll see with Daniel and his friends. But that's not even the primary reason that we express an attitude of respect and honor. The primary reason is because God put those leaders over us. He put them there. And he's commanded us to respect and honor them. So it has nothing to do with whether or not we like them. It has nothing to do with whether or not we voted for them or how they treat us once uh, they get into office or even whether or not they honor God in what they do. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was evil incarnate. If there was ever a leader based on his performance and lack of moral values who deserved to be disrespected, it was probably Nebuchadnezzar. And yet these Jewish nobles treated him and his officials, the whole government, with much respect. And, and we should do the same thing. That's how we live in this culture and hold to our values without isolating ourselves from the world around us because the world around us needs us. Do you, do you know that? The world around us needs us. They need the church, whether they realize it or not. They need Christians to engage in their lives and in industry and in business and in arts and in politics. In every aspect of culture, we should be engaged in it and yet exist above the fray of the evil and idolatry that is so rampant in our culture today. And one way that we do that is by our attitude. Honoring God with every word that we speak, even when we're surrounded by and subject to ungodly leadership. And yet with that said, there are times when disobedience to God means, or excuse me, obedience to God means disobedience to our earthly leaders. And Daniel uh, and his friends uh, understand that. And we see a perfect example of how that is to be handled as well as we keep reading. So let's read verses 8 through 10. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Now, there's more to be found here in this interpretation if you look at the original Hebrew than, than may be obvious at first reading. And it's significant because there's been a lot of debate over the years about why Daniel felt he would defile himself by eating the king's food and drinking his wine. And people say, well, it must have been offered to idols, except there's no real evidence for that. Um, people say that Daniel would have known it was a healthier diet. That's not true. They wouldn't have known that at that point. There's no evidence of that. There's no actually any strong evidence at all under Jewish ceremonial law uh, that there was anything forbidden about the specific food and drink offered to them by the Babylonians. And so th this is where it gets interesting. At the beginning of verse 7, right after Daniel and his friends are taken away from everything that they'd known and loved. Right when they were going to put the coffin in the nail, or the nail in the coffin, excuse me, of these Jewish boys' very identities. They're, they're, they're finishing off their indoctrination, the, the brainwashing of these boys. They're getting ready to put the nail in the coffin. It says the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. And the word gave in that verse is the Hebrew word sum. It means he, it's a verb. He placed or he set 
And it's a very strong word in the, in the original Hebrew. It was to really commit to something, like set in stone. It was a, a hard and fast commitment. And so the Babylonians were committed to create new identities for these Jewish noble boys, to complete the process and strip them of their very identity. And yet at the beginning of verse 8 that we just read, where it says that Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, the word resolved is the exact same Hebrew word, sum. It's also in the same verb form that was used by the eunuch in verse 7. And so here's the cool thing about that. The way that verses 7 and 8 are set against each other in the original writing with the same Hebrew verb used at the beginning of each verse, once by the eunuch and once by Daniel, suggests very strongly in the interpretation that Daniel, uh, this is a response by Daniel in verse 8, and it had very little to do with the actual food and wine and everything to do with the eunuch's attempt to erase their identities in verse 7. In other words, verse 8 was Daniel's response to what the eunuch said in verse 7. Daniel and his friends, in a very clever and yet a very respectful way, were rejecting these new identities. So just as the Babylonians were committing to, they were assumed to change the identities of Daniel and his friends, Daniel and his friends were committing, they were assumed to refuse to live in the customary way of the Babylonians. And that way, right in front of them, just happened to be the food and wine they were given to eat and drink. And so to keep their Hebrew identities intact which is confirmed even further by the fact that throughout the writing we often see Daniel referring to them by their Hebrew names rather than their Babylonian names. Daniel digs in his heels and he says, look, you, you, can, you can take us away from our families. You can take away our homes. You can take away uh, our culture. You can take away our religious things. You can even take away our names, but you cannot take away our God. We know who we belong to, and you cannot take that from us. That's what Daniel was saying in verse 8 by making a stand. And he says no. And he does it very interesting, very uh, respectfully, as we'll see. But he says no. We're not going to eat that food and drink your wine. That kind of interplay, by the way, happens throughout this whole book. I wish we had time to unpack all of it. But we'll move on. Daniel says that he'd resolved that he would not eat the king's food or drink the king's wine. Again, probably much more because of uh, their renaming than because of the food and wine itself. But either way, this was a big deal. In captivity, it was especially a big deal to refuse any act of kindness by your captors. And the common people in that day didn't eat the same food as the people ate in the royal court. It was totally different. So to be offered the same food and drink as the king was a, was a big deal. And yet Daniel wasn't doing it out of disrespect. He was actually doing it to honor God by retaining his Hebrew identity. And so his approach, rather than demanding different food or complaining about the violation of his religion, he simply and kindly and respectfully asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him to do something different. And the eunuch refuses Daniel's request. Why? Because he fears a backlash from the king. And yet it says that Daniel had favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. Even though they disagreed and the eunuchs said, no, I'm not going to do that. Even then you can see the mutual respect and compassion in how they dealt with each other. Obviously there was a disagreement on a religious level, even a physical level and a political level. But even with all of that, there is this mutual respect and kind treatment throughout the entire process, which is exactly how Christians should confront our culture today. We always act in obedience to God first. And even when that means disobedience to those in authority over us, we do so respectfully and compassionately. And so Daniel, determined to do what is right, simply persists with the next person down in the chain of command. Let's read it together, verses 11 through 16. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine, and they were to drink the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. I hope all you kids are listening. 
Not only does Daniel and his friends honor God in their attitudes, but, but they honor him also in their actions. And this is our final point for today. They disobey the edict of the king by convincing an underling of the chief of eunuchs to feed them only vegetables and water. And this is precisely what Jesus meant when he told his disciples in Matthew 10, 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We're to be wise in our dealings with the wolves and yet innocent of sin. We should never be weak-minded, easily swayed toward unrighteousness, even when a leader or government official or our culture bears down on us to do something that is directly against the command of God. When we're pressured by the culture around us to change our views or our beliefs and convictions that are based on God's Word, and yet that's exactly what we're seeing today in our culture, even among some of our most prominent pastors in this country that we mentioned earlier. No, we're supposed to be wise, intelligent, smart in how we deal with the world. In fact, Christians should be the most put together, confident, resolved, unwavering, solid, and immovable in their convictions people among all the people in every culture. And yet, at the same time, not arrogant or demanding or abusive. We should also be known for our compassion and respect and love for others and for honoring people, especially those who are in leadership over us and always innocent of sin, even in our disobedience to those leaders. And that's a tall order, I know. It's not easy to walk that line. But remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen: God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And this disobedience by Daniel and his friends is a perfect example of that. They made a decision to do what was right and God provided the way for them to do it without having to give in and be defiled by the king's culture. And to be clear, uh, it was God that paved the way for them, that gave them this favor with the king's officials. Remember, God is sovereign even in our uh, worst of circumstances. Verse 9 says, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So we have to learn to trust God in every situation and find balance between being too soft, uh, too weak when it comes to the culture around us. We have to stand up for righteousness. We have to be as wise as serpents and settled in our resolve to follow Christ no matter the cost to us personally. And that, and that takes a lot of courage and resolve and strength, all attributes that we should be known for. And at the same time, not so belligerent with the culture around us, with everyone who sees things differently, those who have different political views and religious views and moral views, that we alienate ourselves from society and become irrelevant to those that we encounter every day because we're unable to get along with anyone who's different than us. We have to honor God and at the same time show respect and compassion and love to everyone else as well, even if we can't agree with them or obey them all the time. And this is the line that Daniel and his friends walked so masterfully. In a secular pagan culture, they were able to live about as embedded in a culture as you could get in the king's court. And at the same time, <clears throat> they existed above the fray. They never got caught up with what was popular or easy or expected. No, they stood firm according to God's commands and they honored him in their attitudes and in their actions. They lived above the fray of the culture. Let's read the last verses, uh, last five verses in our text, and we'll, we'll end for today. It says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all vision and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel. <coughs> Excuse me, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, remember Daniel's writing this, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel uh, was there until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. It had to feel good to be Daniel and write that about yourself. I think that's pretty cool. What a testimony to God's people living and thriving in a secular culture 
without caving to the ungodly demands of that culture. What a testimony. And the key here to all of this is that our resolve to follow Christ, no matter the cost to us, comes from a deep understanding and realization in our own lives of exactly who God is. We can never successfully navigate the pressures of this world by simply trying to follow some kind of set of rules. That will never work. The Old Testament proves it. If the basis for our attitudes and actions is a set of rules, then we will falter. But if at our core, as we see with Daniel and his friends, at our deepest level of conviction, we yearn to follow God because we understand who he is and we've experienced the realization of that in our lives by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and the subsequent indwelling of his Holy Spirit in our lives, it is then and only then that we will be able to stand firm when the pressure is full on. That's when we experience His grace and favor. You see, it's not simply about behavioral modification. It's about behavioral motivation. There's a big difference. What motivates us to do what is right? Is it because we were raised in church and taught to follow the rules? That isn't bad. It just isn't enough. There has to be a deep conviction to do what is right that is born out of a love and desire to please Him, which only comes, only comes when we truly know Him. Okay, at the end of the day, living a life above the fray means living a life in love with Jesus Christ. That's how we find favor with Him. That's how we walk in His grace. That's how we experience the fullness of His provision, even when the pressure is at its worst, because there's a knowing in the very depths of our soul that He is all that we need, and He is all that we desire. I was praying not long ago, and facing a real possibility that we could lose most of what we have materially, my family, uh, for quite some time, Those of you that know, when we started this church, we had no steady income, um, and we didn't know if it was going to sustain or not. And then in addition to that, there have been several circumstances in our lives that have created very real financial pressures, medical bills and things that you guys know about. That led me to a place of prayer where I was asking God to preserve not only us as a family, but our home and material possessions, because that's all that we have left in terms of material things. And in that time of prayer, as he so often does, at that still small voice of the Holy Spirit, he asked me a question. As I'm pleading with him to help us uh, to be able to keep our stuff, he said, if you lose everything that you own, will you still have me? And I said, yes, I will still have you. And he said to me, then you will have all that you need. Daniel and his friends lost everything. They lost their homes, their families, their position, their culture, their identities, even their names. And yet they knew that they still had the Lord. And that meant they had all that they needed. So they chose to honor him in every attitude and every action. And the result was that God's favor increased in their lives. And they prospered under some of the heaviest pressure and one of the darkest periods in history for God's people. Don't you fret over what's going on in our country right now. Don't you dare let yourself fret over what's going on. We were born for this time. We were born to be here. And whatever comes our way, and however different or hard it may be based on the the past experience of the American church, don't you worry about it because God created you for this moment. And as long as we have Him, we have everything that we need. We just have to honor Him in every attitude and in every action. And then live above the fray. Let's pray.